Hi, you're listening to Eternal Stance. I hope this message inspires you to live in light of eternity. All right, so I am excited about this sermon in particular because I've spent a lot of time this week looking through the book of Ruth. Um, the book of Ruth is interesting because it's, if you were looking for it, it's, I think it's the eighth book and it's very small. It's only four chapters, but there's so much packed into this four chapters and I'm going to try really hard to go through all of this. But I remember specifically one time about a year and a half ago, we went to climb Mount Pilipchik. Do you guys know that's at? Mount Pilipchik? Yeah. So we decided that, Hey, we're just kind of, we, we were just kind of sitting around and we're like, Hey, we should go for a hike. And we just sort of got our shirts on and our tennis shoes on, and we decided we're gonna go to this hike. And I remember hiking up this mountain, and as we were hiking up this mountain, we started to encounter a lot of snow. But we're like, we got this. Like, it's just, we're not even halfway up, and there's just already a lot of snow. Well, that was our first mistake. (laughs) And, And we kept on pushing through that. And as we kept on climbing, we realized maybe we should turn around. We're like, nah we got to see the sunset. Well, you know, we had this goal in mind and we finally made it all the way to the top. And uh, once we got on top of, uh, of, of, the, of the mountain, we encountered this two guys are walking back. These two guys looked at us and they're like, well, you're, you guys are right there. The house is right there. Um, and we talked a little bit briefly with them and then they left. When we got on top of the mountain, we took a whole bunch of pictures and then it started to get dark really quickly, especially because it was kind of like early spring. And as we're climbing down by this time, it's getting dark and we're getting very cold. And as we're climbing, we're trying to make, but we're kind of trying to find the path because now it's like there's snow and it's really hard to try to find where we climbed. And as we are climbing down, we hear this scream for help. Uh, as you can see, I'm trying to like put all this story. It's a big story, but I'm trying to put it into a small kind of like summary. It turns out that those two guys that were climbing down, one of them fell into a tree well. If you know, uh, the snow melts around the trees for some reason. <laughs> uh, if you're a scientist, let us know. Um, but as, as the snow melted, it created this sort of like uh, round uh, around the, the, the tree. And this guy slid into it and broke his collarbone um, so he just kind of, he, he couldn't even be moved and obviously it was very cold. It was very dark and we just didn't know what to do. And we ourselves were in tennis shoes and a shirt and, uh, we started to look for service and we finally called the police department. Um, and they told us that after about 45 minutes of looking for service, um, they finally told us that they sent a helicopter to pick up this guy. Um, we w- walked up to this guy, we, we, we wrapped him up with all that we had left, we gave him our flashlight, and at the same time, we're like, okay, well, we're freezing, you know, so we're like, hey, we're gonna go and get help, we're not gonna leave you here. So as we run, these uh, other couple is climbing down, they're very prepared, you know, they, they've been doing this for a very long time. So like, hey, we need your help, there's this guy, he needs help. We finally bring this couple, this couple starts to kind of help him, make him coffee, uh, and by this time, we realized, okay, we can go home now. And man, the, 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 the walk down, it was just so difficult. Finally, we get to the parking lot, and his partner has his shoes off, and he, it's, it's pitch dark. And this guy's just sitting on the rock like this. And we're like, what are you doing? He's like, well, I left the keys with the guy on the mountain. <laughs> so I don't know how to get home, or I don't know how to go get help. 
you know, finally tell him that, hey, we, we finally called the helicopter. They're, they're coming. You can come home with us. But looking back at this story, um, the next day we, you know, we didn't hear much about it. And then for the next three days, we didn't hear much about it. But then I got on Facebook and there's just like whole story of this guy. And this guy, so the guy who was making the coffee posted the, the whole story of the pictures. And then I look at the comments and everyone is just going off at us. They're like, I can't believe those three guys just left him to die there. Like, I can't believe this. And there's like literally hundreds of comments of bashing on us, you know? And, and I'm like, uh-uh, we're not doing this right now. So I get on there and I'm like, listen, I was one of those guys. The whole reason we left him was to go get help. Because it can't really help him when there's no service and we're just kind of like, what, what are we supposed to do? And, and I'm trying to kind of, kind of explain this whole situation Finally, somebody gets on there and says, well, it's good to hear your perspective now. I'm like, well, it's really easy for you to be a hero with your keyboard at home, but we're running on the mountains like in our shirts, you know, and like we're freezing, you know, and we're still trying to do the right thing. Now, if I look at this story and I'm just thinking like, how do we get ourselves in that position? Well, I know how we got ourselves in that position. All the choices along the way that we've made led us there. For example, the choice not to actually get snow booth, uh, booths, like booth, <laughs> booths, <laughs> um, uh, not to get, you know, something that's warmer than our shirts, right? Like that's how we got there. Being able to, you know, climb for a specific amount of time, but we didn't think about how we're going to get back in the snow. We didn't, we didn't think about how we're going to get back in the dark, right? So we, so we, we look at the story and it's like, nah, we saw the signs. We just didn't really kind of prepare for it. Every single choice that we made led us there. Now, God had a, a grander picture, and if we were not there, I don't know what would have happened to the guy. God was working in the background to provide, in a sense, a, a way of, of this guy being driven to the hospital. So he was working in the background for, for this whole story. Now, the, the good thing is that there was a good ending to this, and the guy got a hospital, you know, he was able to re be released within a couple weeks, but, you know, he, his life was saved, he didn't die on the mountain, and looking back at this, I think a lot of times in our spiritual lives, we, we go to one extreme or another. One extreme being, well, Jesus has paid the price, so I don't have to do anything. That's one extreme. Jesus' obedience doesn't mean that you should not obey. Jesus himself said that you are my friends if you do what? if you follow and if you obey my commandments, right? So there's one extreme of people, you know, oh, you know, I, I, I have to, you know, just kind of chill because Jesus have, has paid everything. That's one extreme. And the other extreme is where you don't really trust that God is really working in the background for your good. Now we've just read in Romans 8, 28, where it says that in all things, God works for our good. And no matter if it's, it's, if it's a broken situation, if you're going through sickness or disease, or if you lost someone in your family, regardless where you're going through, God is working in the background. So those are two extremes, right? We don't want to go on one hand and saying that, oh, just because Jesus was obeyed, we don't have to obey anymore. On the other hand, we cannot live like the unchristians and unbelievers and try to do everything on our own because if we don't get our own, then who's going to get it for us? Those are two extremes. And now, now the, a lot of times we get motivated by two different things. Either we are motivated by fear or we are motiv motivated by pride. 
Well, you know what? I have to be a good person because my parents expect me to go to a good school. That's being motivated out of fear. I have to, you know, do this. Otherwise I get fired. That's being motivated out of fear. Okay. Where the other motivation is when we get motivated by pride. Oh, I have to do this because I'm, I'm just a better person than everybody else. I, I have to be nice because I have to keep my family's name. Now, again, those are two big extremes. Again, we cannot be motivated by fear or by pride. I love this uh, passage that in John 4, 18, it says, such love has no fear because perfect love casts out or expels. Love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for the fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced perfect love. Okay. And the other, the other extreme is we are motivated by pride. And in, in, in Proverbs 16, 8 says, pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before the fall. So either war, if you're motivated by fear, it's not a good thing or by pride. So what you should be motivated by is love. This is what we love, not because, you know, we are scared or we are prideful. We love because he loved us first. We choose to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ because he has served us, because he has loved us. And everything that we do, we don't do it because Pastor Yuri told us or because, oh, we're just a better church than everyone else. We do it because Christ has loved us and because of that, loved embrace becomes love extended. And when we go to Book of Ruth, it's just such a depressing book. The way it starts out, I'm just like, wow, can this get a, a little bit more depressing? And I think a lot has to do with kind of like, you now we understand that when we talk about the Book of Ruth, the main character in it is Ruth. But really, uh, there's another character that's, I would say that it represents us even better. Think of, you know, her mother-in-law, Naomi. I want to give you a little bit of a background. What happened in the Book of Ruth? Now, Bo- uh, Booth. Again, that word, Ruth, (laughs) the book of Ruth (laughs) uh, starts out after the book of Judges. Now, you know how there was Joshua, he conquered the land of the Canaanites, and then there's the book of Judges, and the book of Judges ends in this depressing line. It says that there was no king in Israel at that time, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Kind of like, you know, today. Like, there was no king, so everyone did what was right in their eyes. And because of that, God allowed for his people, the Israelites, to go into a famine. Now, when we look at this, this, this story, it starts out with, you know, Naomi and Elimelech. Elimelech is a guy who's an Israelite. His name actually means, by, from, from kind of like the word, God is my king. So Eli, like God. So Elimelech, his name means, God is my king. The only problem is, is that even though with his name he professed that God is his king, his life didn't really live it. I mean, he didn't live that way. Kind of like a lot of us, you know? Like he stepped out of Israel and he decided to go to the land of the Moabites. Now, if you don't know anything about the Moabites, the Moabites are, they have their own history. Now, I know this is a little bit of history, so please stay with me. The Moabites started with Lot. Do you, guys, do you guys remember Lot? Abraham and Lot? And uh, Lot had a problem with, with Abraham and then they split and then he went to Sodom and Gomorrah 
and then there was a destruction in Sodoma and Gomorrah, and then he, Lot, uh, got drunk and slept with his daughter. And the kid that they had, his name was Moab. So this nation started out of incest. This nation started out of this kind of like sinful situation. And as we go on, we see how God has a problem with the Moabites. Because there are people that are, you know, not only people that started in sin, but they also try to always seduce the Israelites. There are some stories in the Old Testament where the Moabite women tried to seduce the Israelite men. And because of that, because they got married and, and they had children and so on and so forth, God actually punished the Israelites and 24,000 people died. But the Israelites like the Moabites women because they're really good looking. So here we, going, uh, we get into the book of Ruth and we already kind of see a, a ruined situation. So this guy leaves God's people and goes to a people who are supposed to be accursed and sinful people and because in search of, of food because there's famine in Israel. And he takes his wife with him, Naomi. Now Naomi, her name means pleasant. I, 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 I don't know if you have any uh, nieces, but I, one thing that I love about kids is that they're, most of them, some of them are hard to deal with, uh, but most of them, they're pleasant to be around, right? Like they're just kind of, as they grow up, like I just love being in their presence and how easily they forgive and how easily, you know? So I don't know how she got this name, but a lot of the times they would name their sons and their daughters based on the circumstances where maybe how the, the daughter looked or maybe what was happening in that season in the nation. So for example, we have Elimelech, which his name means God is my king. And then we have Naomi that was born around the same time, right? And we have her name means pleasant. But then they have two kids in Moab and they name them uh, Malon and Chilion, which that sounds odd, but so, so, and both of them, their names mean uh, something along the lines of sickness and destruction or death. You know, I'm, I mean, imagine naming your kids that, like, hey, sickness, can you, could you go get destruction? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what? Right? Like, who would name their kids that? Do you not like them? Like, and they get married to Moabite women. And it so happens that both of them die, and their father actually dies about some, I think, 10 years prior to that. And Naomi is left with her two daughters-in-law and by herself. Now, again, I haven't been through premarriage counseling and or after counseling and all that, but uh, I do know that for the most part, seems to be a problem between mothers-in-laws and, and, and wives. It seems like there's always that. But that's not what happens here. Naomi, even though she's just so broken, she went to escape death and famine and she came to this new land and exactly what she ran away from, she encountered. Her husband died and both of, his, um, of her sons died. And this is where we came to chapter one where it, it kind of just tells us this. And we see in verse 13 where Naomi turns to Orpah, not Oprah, don't transpose the letter there, the two different stories, but Orpah is one of the daughters, the Moabites' daughters that was, uh, was married to, I think, a Mahlon. 
and she turns to Oprah, uh, Oprah, 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 <laughs> speaking of which, um, Orpah and, you know, Ruth, which is the other daughter, and she says this, she says, things are far bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself, himself raised his hand, his fist against me. And again, they wept together and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Luke Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone. Uh, well, has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should be, do the same. Um, she's not exactly the greatest evangelist. Uh, Naomi is just like, look, I am, I am bitter right now, and you should go back to your people. Naomi, in another sense, can't really see any out good or, or good coming out of this. No good outcomes, is what I'm trying to say. She can't see it. And I think a lot of times we kind of, when we go through our own brokenness, we can't see this either. And she's kind of blinded by her brokenness. But th that's not what Ruth does. It says, but Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there, will, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. What an amazing way to address your friends. Even in marriage, they say, until death do us what? Part. But she's saying here that, hey, will you die? I wanna stay there. I don't wanna leave. And let your God be my God. We see something in Ruth that like, it's really hard to see, especially in the modern day and culture, where she's like, hey, I will not leave you or forsake you. And this is the value that I want to tell you from the book of Ruth, that as a church, I hope we learn that we stick together, that we have unity. And when we see someone that is going through a difficult time, we don't just point to it like Orpah and says, see ya. No, it's we stick together and say, hey, whatever you're going through. Now, or, um, Ruth doesn't really know what's gonna happen. She doesn't know that you know, a guy named Boaz is gonna enter her life. She doesn't know any of these things, but she trusts God, the God of Naomi, and she makes her commitment there. So I really hope that as a church, we embody that value, that we don't leave anyone behind, that we, we go in the midst of it and, and, and when somebody's going through a really rough season in their life. Now, let me tell you something about Ruth. Ruth is coming to a nation that's a bit racist towards them. She's coming to a nation that, and she is poor. She doesn't have anything. So she's taking a lot of risk, like, you know, Imagine for a second here, like she's coming to this nation, like she's poor, she's a Moabite, not the greatest of families to come from. You know, she doesn't really know how things will turn out. And she comes with a bitter mother-in-law. Not exactly what you post on your Christian single profile. I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't know because I don't have one, but like, <laughs> right? Like, like not exactly what you post on your profile. 
And she is coming to a nation that she doesn't really know. And, and when, when she comes into the city, we see in verse 19, it says that, so the two of them continued. So Ruth was okay, said, okay, okay, it seems like you're not gonna leave me. So they start to walk together. And it says, so the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, which means the house of bread, Bethlehem, right, house of bread, the entire town, the entire town came out, right? and was excited for their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The woman asked. So if you think about this, this is some welcome back home party. The whole town comes out and says, Naomi, like you left, like I, is he really you? And instead of her being excited to be back, you know what she says? That's not what she says. She says, don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead call me Mara for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? Do, do you see kind of like the pessimism, but also the brokenness that comes through her words? She's saying, hey, don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter. Because I left, you know, with my husband and all of that, and I came back empty. Which to me is kind of like, really, Naomi? Came back empty? How about one of the best friends you could ever have? Ruth. That's not coming back empty. But you see, a lot of times when we, we are in our in our suffering, we don't get to see the blessings that God has provided for us through our church family, through our family and friends, right? We, we sort of are blinded to the things that God has already provided for us. And this is what happens to Naomi. She comes back, she said, don't call me bitter. Um, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. So I hope as a church, we don't do that. As a church, we, we trust God's providence. The God, the work that he's starting in all of us, he'll bring to completion. Now, God works in supernaturally. He works through his ability to supernaturally come and, and it, we, we can pray for healing and somebody might be healed right away. But also God provides through his hand of, of providence, meaning that he you know, gives us food and friends and family. And a lot of times we don't see his providence in, on the backhand, we're on the back way. I love this, this hymn by this guy. He, he was extremely depressed, suicidal, but he wrote this amazing hymn that is sung a lot and it was called God Moves, well, it was called actually Light Shining out of darkness, but now it's kind of known by this phrase, God moves in a mysterious way. And he says this, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him with his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. 
He purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. He came, he, this guy, his name is William Copper, and he came out of this like suicidal depression. And then and, and he writes this, that behind his kind of like providence, his frowning providence, meaning that you think that God is just frustrated with you, but God's like, just stick with me. And he's smiling behind that and saying, hey, I got a plan that you don't foresee and you don't know about. So the second value that I want to tell you about is we step in faith. So, so what I want to tell you first is, is how we talked about that as a church, we stick together. And the second thing is that we trust in the moments of despair, we trust that he will bring providence and he will work through other means. He has so many different ways of working, you know, and changing our life. And, and this is what we see in Ruth. And as they get back home, you know, obviously they have a pretty bad sort of outlook on life. But at the same moment, I want to pause here and I want to give you a third value. As a church, we are not getting defined by our past. We are getting defined by what Christ said about us. On the same token, I want to say that as a church, we don't hold other people's pasts against them. So if you came from a broken family, we don't hold that against you. If you unfortunately had to go through divorce, we don't hold that against you. If you came and you repented and you, you encountered the Lord, we don't look at you as damaged goods. We are not getting defined like Naomi by our you know, circumstances. It amazes me to see like these two women where Naomi is just like, call me bitter because I'm not pleasant right now. When Ruth is saying, you know what? I've went through the same brokenness, but I'm gonna trust God on this. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm coming with a lot of baggage, but I know that the God that Naomi talk, talks about will provide. And this is exactly what happens. The next chapter we see uh, Naomi basically uh, saying to, to so, so rather Ruth saying to Naomi that, look, we can't just kind of like sit in our own kind of like pity party, right? And she says in Ruth 2.2 says this, now there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. One day Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go into the harvest field uh, to pick up the um, stalks of grain behi left behind by anyone who's kind enough to let me do it. So she says, okay, and now give you a little bit more history. What's happening here is that nobody could walk on somebody else's field and be like, oh, I'm just gonna get whatever I want, right? That would be stealing. But God provided in Leviticus where if you're a businessman and if you're running a field, that God told the church and the businessman to leave the margins and not, not, you know, not harvest the margins. That was for the poor. So the poor would come, and, and the reason uh, this is called gleaning, they would come and they would kind of go on the margins and pick the margins, but also maybe if there's any grain left behind from the workers or the reapers, right? Like if anything was left behind, then the poor would pick that up. 
Now God did this because he wanted the poor to still have their integrity and their, their kind of like their sense of like worth by actually working for their food, right? So he wasn't a handout. It was just God providing for the community. And in Ruth happens to be poor and she says, can I go and, and see if someone will show me favor? So as a church, remember I told you one of the values that I hope that we embody is that we don't just sit back and like, oh, if God is gonna do whatever he wants to do, like I'm just gonna, no, we step in faith, right? We step in faith and as we step in faith, God comes and starts to provide. And that's exactly what happens, where Ruth starts to glean after Boaz, uh, uh, rather Boaz workers. And one day Boaz shows up, and it amazes me, like if you go and read the story, he comes and he's like, the Lord be with you, my, he, like, and it's, he, the way he, he talks to his workers, I'm just like, I've never had that at the office, right? Like, and, and then the workers go back like, the Lord be with you, and like, God, the Lord bless you, and the other guy's like, the Lord bless you, and like, imagine doing that at an office, right? Like, out of your cubicles, right? <laughs> that would be a sight to see, but that's exactly what happens, and that shows us a little bit of a, of kind of like perspective who Boaz is. And then as he's saying this, he's like, whoa, who is that? Uh, it's um, translation for check that person out. Check her out. Who, whose family she belonged to? That's kind of like the first sort of like pickup line uh, in, the, in the Ruth, the, the book of Ruth. And, and as, as he sees her, you know, he goes up to her and he says this, that I just, I love this so much. Um, Ruth 2, 8 says, Boaz went over and said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, stay right here with us. When you gather grain, don't go into the other fields. Stay right here behind with the young men, uh, young women rather, working in my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting and then follow them. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water that they have drawn from the well. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness? She said, I am only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied, but I know also the, everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, now I want you to pay attention to this. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under those wings, um, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. So, Boaz goes and starts talking to her and says, hey, look, um, this is awesome. Stay here. Stay with us. I don't want you to go to a different field because somebody might mistreat you. You can see the character of Boaz. He's a protector. He, is a, he takes care of the orphan and the widow. Remember how we talked about James 1.27, that true religion or true faith is to take care of the orphan and the widow. We, we see the body of, 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 of Jesus kind of like qualities in Boaz. And so as he tells her that, he says, okay, well, after you're done, come over here. And, and they, they are having lunch. And he says that Boaz gave Ruth some roasted grain. If you guys don't understand what that is, that's the first date, okay? They are sitting down and they're having a meal, okay? And not only, I don't know, maybe you didn't have roasted grain for your first date, but... But this is exactly what's ha happening here where, you know, he's providing for her lunch and then 
gives her uh, like about some 30 to 40 pounds of grain. And she takes it home to Naomi and also takes home to Naomi roasted grain too. Long story short, after weeks of this, you would think by the end of chapter two, like, okay, boss, like, okay, do something. Um, ladies, some of us guys, we have a hard time, a lot of times taking, you know, the first step. So I'll just leave, leave that there. And it seems like Boaz kind of doing the same thing. Um, but it doesn't stop Ruth, you know? Uh, now, what I'm going to tell you is very scandalous. And I, I, Lord, I, I hope that I'm doing justice to this next passage that's coming up. Um, here it goes. Uh, Ruth 3.3 3 says, One day Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter, it's time that I found a permanent fault. Uh, permanent home for you that you will be provided for. Boaz is a close relative of ours and has been very kind to, um, very kind by letting you gather grain with his, his young women. Tonight he will be uh, winnowing uh, barley on the threshing floor. Now do as I tell you take a bath and put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he has finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down. Then go uncover his feet. Okay, this is getting really rowdy. Um, <laughs> then go uncover his feet and lie down there. Weird. Um, he will tell you what to do. Look, um, I want to preface this by saying that a lot of the Bible is descriptive. It's not prescriptive, meaning it describes what happened. Ladies, if you see a guy sleeping, don't. Don't uncover and lay by his feet. That's very weird. Um, what I'm trying to say is Naomi didn't give the best advice here. Right? Be sure to notice where he lies down, then go uncover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. I will do everything you say, Ruth replied. Great. <laughs> you agreed. Um, so she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. Risky. Very risky. But let me explain here what's happening. Um, I think every commentary that I read and every sermon that I heard on this, people are like, oh, this is very, very sexually loaded and it's just, oh, wow. I think maybe there's a more easy explanation for this. Have you ever slept and you somehow got uncovered from your blanket and you got cold? Especially like if your feet got cold. What do you do? You first wake up usually and you're like, okay, my feet are cold, but you're too lazy to actually cover them. But then you sort of have this wrestle match and then you finally decide that I have to cover my feet. Right? So I'm not exactly sure maybe Ruth tried to do that where obviously she's trying to get his attention and uncover his feet and lays at his foot. But also when we look at the biblical language, we see that a lot of times we, we see language such as where I'm going to make your enemies your footstool. So we see this idea that, you know, when somebody comes and we see Jesus, you know, when this woman comes in and cries and washes his feet, it's, it's, it's a humble position of saying, I am your servant. It's a humble position of saying, hey, I care about you. And, but I come to you in humility. And, and, and I, I love, and what she's really doing, she's setting things up here. Imagine Boaz waking up and seeing this. 
Well, needless to say, he didn't really have the best reaction. He says, Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits. He laid down at the far end and a pile of grain um, and went to sleep. Then Ruth came quietly and covered his feet and lay down. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman laying at his feet. Who are you? I don't think that was the reply. It was more like, who are you? I don't really know how he said it, but I'm pretty sure he was very confused. And she replies, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. You know what Ruth is saying? Hey, Boaz, you remember that talk that you said about how God is going to cover me under his wings? Remember that part when he came and met me? Well, you are my family redeemer. Now, a little bit of history there. In the Old Testament, if you were married and your husband died, then his brother would have to come and fulfill his role by giving you an heir because women, unless they had a, you know, a son or a, a husband, they couldn't provide for themselves in the sense that like, they were not allowed to do a lot of things. So Ruth didn't have any rights. And she looks at Boaz and says, you said that the Lord would cover me with his wings. Just turns out that that provision comes through you. And he replies back, says, the Lord bless you, my daughter, which is weird to call someone that could be romantically my daughter. But, okay, this is not that weird, okay? You went through your youth ministry and he called everyone brothers and sisters. And your sisters owned everyone and brothers owned everyone. But then there was a specific brother and a specific sister, in a sense spiritually, that lifted their, he their hand kind of higher than normal. And you're like, wow, they're a worshiper. So, so this is what's happening here. He comes first with the heart of a father and he calls her a daughter because he cares, right? Like, like a pastor here will call you a daughter. It doesn't mean that you actually are his daughter. It just means, hey, that's the relationship that we have for right now is I treat you like a daughter. Until I marry someone, right? I would still call that, you know, probably not sisters on her, but like, you know what I mean? Like, we'll still be sisters and brothers in Christ. So it's not nothing weird here. What this is saying is he comes with a caring heart, says, you know, and he goes, the Lord blesses you, my daughter. And he says, but while it's true that I am, uh, in verse 12, that I am your family redeemer, there's another man who is more closely related to you than I am. Stay here the night, and in the morning I will talk to him. If he is willing to redeem you very well, let him marry you. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then surely, as the Lord lives, I'll redeem you myself. Now look what he says here. Now lie down here until morning. Think about this. Lie down here until morning. Boaz could have taken advantage of her, but that's not what he does. He says, lie down, because he knew that if he were to send her out at night, she could be raped, she could be, she could be in real danger, right? So he says, but he, uh, so Ru Ruth laid at Boaz's feet until morning, but she got up early or before light, enough for people to recognize each other for Boaz had said, no one must know that a woman was here at the threshing floor. Then Boaz said to her, bring your cloak and spread it out. He measured six scoops of barley 
onto the cloak and placed it on her back. What's happening here is after he's confused, she tells him, would you take care of me? Boaz looks at her and says, well, he remember how Noam told her that Boaz will tell you what to do? He could have taken advantage of her, but that's not what he did. He says, stay here until morning and I'm going to figure this out because there's another guy that needs to redeem you first. He comes in line first and then I'm after him. So what he does here is he allows, he protects her. And he says, and, he, and she gets up before the dawn of the morning or before the, um, the sunrise or before light rather. Not only he protects her and doesn't take an advantage of her, but also he protects her from being exposed. Because imagine if people are like, there's a woman here? What kind of woman is she? Of course she's a Moabite. Of course she's a prostitute. Oh, of course, like, you know, she should go after men like that. But that's not what Boaz does. I remember Pastor Eric, we did like a podcast on godly manhood. And I remember him telling me that Slavic godly men are men who are not predators. They're protectors. And I hope as a church, we embody that value. That when some of us does something that's kind of risky, because that's exactly what Ruth and Naomi did here. That was risky. And that was ill-advised. But instead of Boaz taking advantage of the situation, that's not what he did. What he did is he protected. And then he did not expose and shame. That's what he did. And he says that the next day, he went and this other guy that was supposed to redeem her, he shows up. And he says, hey, would you, would you come and talk to me for a second here? Boaz is talking to him. He says, you know that Elimelech, Naomi has this piece of land that she's trying to sell and Elimelech died. Would you redeem this piece of land? The guy's like, yeah, of course I'll redeem it. It's like, oh yeah, well, but there's a little problem here. If you redeem the piece of land, you also get Ruth, the Moabite. It's like saying, hey, you want to get a house? Yes. Oh yeah, by the way, the people who live in it, um, they get to stay. And the guy's like, uh-uh, no, no, I'm not willing to go on that. Because you know what? If she has a kid with me, then that, all my inheritance might go to this kid. And I'm now willing to risk. Imagine like if your wife saw you bringing home, oh yeah, by the way, got a piece of land, but then a wife came with it too. So the guy is just like, no, I'm not doing this. Well, this guy embodies the spirit of, hey, I'm trying to make money. For me, it's just a transaction. It's an investment. It's getting a deal. But that, that's not what Boaz is doing. He says, okay, well, if you're not going to redeem her, I will redeem her. And he takes her in and marries her. And they have a son, and his name is Obed. And Obed, we, we love, I love this passage, says, so Boaz took Ruth into the home and she became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant and gave birth to a son. Then the woman of the town said, Naomi, praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for my family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of a daughter-in-law who loves you. And he has, been, uh, he has been better to you than seven sons. Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breasts. And she cared for him as if the baby was her own. The neighbor, uh, the neighbor woman said, now last at last, Naomi has a son 
and they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. We're going to come to a prayer here really, really, really close, but remember how we started. Sinful nation of Moab. Two people come to make their family in Moab. They, they have just really bad luck because of poor decisions about leaving the family of God. They have two sons and they name them sickness and destruction. And while the while, Naomi changes her name from Naomi pleasant to bitter because of this whole situation, God is working in the background. God is bringing about the redemption plan of history because guess what? Obed, the son of Ruth and Boaz together becomes the grandfather of David, which is the great, great, great grandfather of Jesus. And it's amazing to see this whole line of, of God redeeming. Now, one thing I didn't tell you is, do you by chance know who Boaz's mom was? Her name was Rahab, a prostitute. But then she became godly and she trained her son Boaz to be godly and changed the whole legacy of the family. So I'm not sure how you came in this morning and I don't know what kind of brokenness is in your family, but I wanna tell you that all these characters like Naomi and Boaz and Ruth are just a shadow and it's just an illustration of what Jesus, who Jesus is. All of them embody a, spe a specific uh, value of who Jesus is. Maybe the perseverance of, of Naomi, and maybe the faithfulness of Ruth, and maybe the fatherly heart and the husbandly heart of, of, of Boaz. God is working in every single one of us. So, so this morning, I want to ask you, if you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, I want to tell you that He is our Redeemer. He is our Boaz. He comes and He changes our family tree. He comes and takes us from the broken to from ourselves being bitter and going through suffering and being mad at God and God saying, I know right now you don't really see it, but I work in all things for your good. And I'm going to bring to completion the work that I started in you. And mother, is if you have a son that maybe is, is going astray and you've been praying for them, don't ever, don't ever underestimate the power of prayer and making godly choices. I love this song by, uh, I think it's uh, Travis. He's a country singer. I don't remember exactly the, the whole name, but he has this, this amazing song. Uh, he says that a farmer and a teacher a hooker and a preacher are driving on the midnight bus down to Mexico. One of them is looking for a vacation, the farmer, one for higher education, the teacher, and two of them are looking for lost souls, the preacher and the hooker. Oh, both of them are looking for lost souls and long story short, they get into a, a car accident and he says that, you know, that the basically the preacher, the teacher and the farmer all die. And as the song progresses, it says, bless the farmer, bless the teacher, bless the preacher who gave this bloody Bible to my mama who gave it to me. Turns out the preacher's mom was the hooker on that bus. So I think a lot of our culture has names like that, but God works in our brokenness of family, 
God works in our own brokenness. But we can't sit back and say, well, I'm just not going to do anything about this. So my hope this morning is this. If you don't know Lord, uh, Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that you make him the Lord and Savior of your life. He is the great Boaz that redeemed us. He took on himself our sins. And he was killed for our iniquity, for our transgressions, for our sins. And the second thing is, is that if you're going through a, a season of depression and a season of suicidal thoughts and brokenness, I want to tell you that behind God's providence, there's a smiling face. God is going to complete his work in you. And maybe this morning, maybe bitter is, is what you define yourself as, where maybe, you know, mad is, is what you define yourself as. God will change that. And it says that the name Obed actually means a worshiper. What an amazing story. Going from God is my king, pleasant, to going into depression of naming your kids sickness and, and, and destruction, and God coming and redeeming this, and the offspring saying, we're saying to your offspring that you'll be named a God worshiper because you will worship God and through your line, Jesus Christ, the ultimate Savior, the ultimate Redeemer will come through. Thank you for listening to Eternal Stance. My hope is that these messages will help you to live in light of eternity. If this podcast is a blessing to you, would you share with other people? Thank you in advance and until next time, God bless you.